Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast and uh, it's a little bit of a strange show this week obviously enough with uh, the MotoGP and World Superbike World into the shutdown as a result of the coronavirus there's a lot of things much more important to deal with rather than just out and out racing but obviously for the show we still won't be able to give all of our listeners a distraction during these hard times and for this week's show we're actually delving into a slightly different topic to normal what we're going to do is we're going to bring forward a show that we had planned for later in the year and uh, we're going to bring it forward now to just into this period of the shutdown just to be able to give a little bit of info and a little bit of insight into one of the riders in the grids that obviously enough everyone's really focused on as a lot of attention over the winter. So on this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to focus in on Fabio Quattararo. So myself, Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison, we're going to be going through some of the interviews that we've had with different people inside the paddock about Fabio over the years. And we're going to just give a little bit of background on Quattararo and then we're going to look to why he's a special rider. We're going to look into some of the details that make him a little bit uh, different compared to some of the other riders that we've seen come through in recent years. David, we're going to start with you. What do you think is is it that makes Fabio such a special rider? Uh, I mean, to me, it's his mental strength, his mental resilience. Um, uh, obviously, he came in as the next big thing uh, uh, Moto3. Uh, when he first started in Moto3, uh, Dorna changed the rules for him to be able to start when he was younger, under 16. Everyone labelled him as the next Mark Marquez. Um, he had a, a, a difficult few years, despite sort of a, a good first few races in Moto3. And he sort of disappeared and got lost and was sort of forgotten about. Um, but in Moto2, he sort of found his feet again, and really that seemed to that process seemed to have strengthened him a lot. Uh, and then you really saw it at um, uh, at Jerez. Um, that to me was when I realised, okay, this lad has got it. When he came in from uh, his gear linkage being broken, um, uh, in the, the first chance that he really had of uh, of being on the podium, battling with Mark Marquez. Um, he came into the pits, was completely destroyed. Uh, 45 minutes later, an hour later, at the press debriefs, he was totally different. He was um, cheerful, happy. Yeah, these things happen. Never mind, on to the next race uh, and all the rest of it. It was, it was genuinely, uh, genuinely impressive. Yeah, Neil, let's just go back to whenever, as David said, he came into the Moto3 World Championship as that hotshot. He was a double CEV Moto3 champion. He had won more races in the Spanish Championship than any rider in history. He qualified on the second row of the grid for his Grand Prix debut. And he just looked like he was the real deal. Put it on the podium in his second race. Those early races in 2015, he just looked great. Yeah, yeah. I think um, he arrived into the World Championship with more hype than I think anyone ever had done, um, yeah, ever because of his record in the CEV, as you say. Um, and I honestly think the first half of his uh, first year in Moto3 probably justified the hype because he, I think he was around half a lap away from winning his first race in his Grand Prix debut in Qatar. Uh, he was on the podium the second time out quite convincingly at um, the Circuit of the Americas. And um, he was fighting for a race win at Jerez. I, I remember going all the way to the last corner in a fight with uh, Danny Kent. I think that was just the fourth race of the year. So, um, yeah, his pedigree was really clear from the start. He came in, he obviously had that structure. Uh, he was with the Australia Galicia team managed by Emilio Alsamora. He'd been with them in 2014 in the Spanish Championship, moved up with them the the, the next year. And, um, yeah, looked like he was going to be winning races like by the by the end of that season. Then we went to Misano and uh, a bit of a freak accident occurred and he broke his ankle. Um, and that really put him, you know, put paid to his chances 
for the rest of 2015. Then it was just a series of uh, bad decisions and bad management, which really um, seemed to not just put him on the back foot, but really knock him completely off balance and lose all of the momentum that he had acquired in his uh, sort of devastating progress that he made through the uh, junior classes. Yeah, because that really was the amazing thing, was just how quickly it all just fell apart for him. Like from Assen onwards in that rookie campaign, as you said, Neil moves to the Leopard team the following year, moves into Moto2 then in 2017. And all the momentum that had come with him at the start of his career was all gone. And David, like obviously for for us inside the paddock, we had seen the potential of someone like Fabio from what he had done at the start of his Grand Prix career. But it really looked like he was a rider that was at the risk of losing his way completely. Yeah, I mean, you see this quite often. You see riders will come in um, they come in after having cleaned up in the CEV or whatever, in the local championships. Um, they come into Moto3 and suddenly find that uh, instead of racing five or six guys who are really good, they're racing 25, 30 guys who are really, really good. Um, and that can be quite difficult for them to, to deal with. Um, and also, I mean, in any motorcycle racing career, you can see uh, people making poor choices. Um, uh, they, you make a move because you think it looks like the right uh, the, the right move. You think you think you're going to be with the right team. You think you're going to be on the right bike. Uh, things don't work out. There isn't a click or whatever. Or uh, what was being presented to you was not um, uh, not the way that things things worked out. Um, it, it, it really. It's easy to get lost on your way into MotoGP. It isn't, it isn't just a single uh, path. And it looked for a while like you know Fabio was going to be one of those uh, uh, one of those riders. Yeah, Neil, it definitely looked like Quattararo was going to be one of those cautionary tales for riders. In four years, he had four Grand Prix podiums and only one win. And then suddenly, last year, we saw him just burst onto the scene in a perfect situation with a, a bike that was perfect for him, a team that was perfect for him. But what was the big change? Because obviously, even just for, for you as well, Neil, like 2015 was your first year in the Grand Prix paddock. And then as you've sort of gone through the last few years, you've been able to see how a rider like Quattararo has been able to grow into his different roles within the paddock, coming in as that hot shot, to then suddenly basically being damaged goods for want of a better phrase, whenever he got the Sepang ride and then what he was able to do last year. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, when he switched to, to Leopard at the end of 2015, um, some different stories about this, but um, perhaps he, he wasn't, uh, the person making the decision wasn't um, thinking solely about uh, the best racing situation for Fabio at that point some other factors have come into play and I think I'm led to believe that Fabio actually expected Leopard to be running Honda machinery in 2016 and when he turned up to the first preseason test he was pretty dismayed to find out that they had switched to KTM without even telling them um, so you could say that they got off on the wrong foot from the very very start um, and then he decided to move up to Moto2 obviously uh, 2017 with Cito Ponza's team obviously one of the top Moto2 teams but you know Fabio is still very very inexperienced and was what only uh, he would have been well he still would have been uh, 16, 17 when he moved up to that uh, to Moto2 which is a very young age to be moving up to the intermediate class um, and there were flashes of, of potential in, in 2017 but um 
yeah, you did you did kind of fear that he was just going to get washed away the way so many riders do in Moto Two. Um but I think um the key really was uh was was two thousand and eighteen when he moved to uh, speed up. Um because um we know that speed up has a record of um, you know, finding some very, very strong uh riders with a lot of potential maybe not the most obvious choices maybe riders that have um had a few bad experiences in the past um or have maybe lost their confidence completely um but that structure um it's a very like familiar team um and it that structure seems to kind of help really work with some riders and kind of um you know inject some fresh life into them and i think we've seen that recently with uh, jorge navarro for example because he was almost a forgotten man in moto 2 and now he's uh, you know one of the, the favorites for the title but um you know quadraro when he got there he was danny kent's teammate they went through i think they changed suspension manufacturer two times during the off season uh the start of the season was pretty hideous he was outside the top 20 i think in qatar and qatar is one of his best circuits um but they had some small modifications um, at Mugello and then from Mugello we went to Barcelona and just suddenly everything clicked perfectly into place and Fabio um, won the race spectacularly from uh, Miguel Oliver. He didn't just win it, he dominated it. Um, and then we went to Aston two weeks later and he didn't win the race, he finished second but had the strongest race pace of anyone on track. And uh, had the race been a couple of laps longer, I think he probably could have chased down and beaten um, Francesco Bagnaia. And suddenly then you're looking at a completely different talent where it's like, ah, okay, this is the guy that we all thought he was. And it just so happened that at that time, uh, the Petronas Yamaha structure, which wasn't even in existence at that point, uh, they had been contemplating signing Danny Pedrosa to partner Franco Morbidelli for their MotoGP operation, but Pedrosa then decided he was going to retire in 2019, and suddenly Wilco Zielenberg and Johan Stigafeld were on the hunt for uh, an exciting new talent uh, to go alongside Morbidelli. So, you know, the, the planet's very much aligned. He hit form at exactly the right time. Timing was absolutely perfect for him. Um, and... Let's be honest, a lot of us questioned whether uh, Zielenberg had lost his mind because it was a real left-field choice at that point. Uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, I interviewed Zielenberg at Topang about Quartararo. One of the things he told me, which surprised me, was like he'd been on the... Like, Quartararo was his choice. He'd been uh, behind Quartararo right from the very beginning. Um, he'd tried to convince Yamaha to sign uh, Quartararo previously because he really liked... What uh, what he could you know what 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 he had what he could see that there was real potential there, um, and it just needed the right environment. So it was um, it, it's funny how some people are just really really good at uh, talent spotting. Um, Zielenberg could see what was there, and uh, he was proved right. Yeah, and Dave just. Uh on the topic of the team and uh, their feelings about him, like you mentioned there that Zielenberg was proven right by hiring, but you also talked to um, Fabio's crew chief, um, Diego Gabellini, about what makes Quattro special and, and how last year progressed. So what was your overall feelings from after that conversation with Diego? What did you learn from talking to him? Uh, I think the biggest thing, I mean, like he said, there's one thing which Fabio has, which is speed. Um, and speed is really, really important. Um, uh, you know, he is genuinely a fast rider. Uh, the other thing is they don't um, they don't spend a lot of time chasing setup. 
Um, it's about him. Uh, it's about Fabio says, you know, give me the bike and I'll sort I'll sort it out. Um, he's always looking for ways for that that he can improve, that he can go faster, uh, rather than uh, oh, I need you know. I need a little bit more, re you know, an extra click of rebound at the back and a, and a millimetre, the ride out raised, raised a millimetre. Um, he's not about finding the perfect motorcycle. He's, he wants a, a bike that's there or thereabouts that he can understand. Um, and uh, then he'll just try and get the absolute best out of what he's got and try and get the best out of his own riding talent. The, that was certainly the, the biggest thing um that uh that i, that I think uh Gubellini told me that was what what he seemed to be focused on and this is something you see a lot from other riders as well you know like the the, the great riders are riders who take a bike and get everything out of the bike rather than um need the bike to come to them yeah it's never always going to be perfect on the bike and those top tier riders always seem to find a way to be able to work their way around it neil you also talked to diego and uh we're speaking about his relationship with fabio and what's impressed him but what was your overall feelings after talking to diego um yeah just that um well i kind of confirmed what we, what we had been seeing on track that we're dealing with uh a real top-class rider um, and one that's really adept at picking up subtle things to improve his performance um, and doing what, what what Dave had just mentioned there, um, pretty much working on himself and how he can extract these these little weapons that he might be able to use against the other Yamaha riders and then, obviously, guys like Mark Marquez. Um, Gubellini um, was hired from Mark VDS's MotoGP team at the end of 2018. They were running Honda machinery. We know that Honda's uh, demand, um, well, the rear brake basically has to be used quite a lot with uh, with Honda machinery. And Gubellini went to Petronas Yamaha with the idea that, hey, okay, maybe the Yamaha isn't anywhere near as wild or... Um, yeah, anywhere near as uh, as kind of wild needs to be ridden in a kind of wild way. Um, however, uh, using the rear brake is still something that we think um, could be uh, an interesting weapon. And they suggested this to, to Cordero, uh during the preseason. And uh, I thought it was really interesting that um, at his first preseason test of 2019 at Sepang, he was saying how difficult he was finding braking, especially braking going into. Uh, tight hairpins, like a turn one, the final turn at Sepang. He was saying that was his big weakness. Um, yet, I think when we got to Hareth, he had worked that out completely. And he was using the rear brake. And indeed, him and Morbidelli qualified first and second at Hareth. And Morbidelli said that, looking at Fra Fabio's data, his braking was now the most impressive aspect of what he was doing on the motorcycle. So in three months, or yeah, two and a half months, Fabio had basically worked it out completely and was now doing something quite special that other riders on that motorcycle were looking at and thinking, wow, like, yeah, okay, maybe we should start trying to do this. Um, and I think one of the one of the biggest things, speaking to a few people in the paddock, um, like Valentino Rossi was looking at how Fabio Cordero used the brakes and used the rear brake in particular and was trying to adapt his own riding style um, to almost mimic what Cordero was doing. And you don't get Valentino Rossi to do that unless you yourself are doing something quite impressive and quite special. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, that, that's kind of evidence of, uh, of his star power. 
Okay, so let's hear what Diego Gubellini has to say about uh, working with Fabio. Understanding where the limit is yeah. and uh, more fast you can go and yeah. more consistent you can be. Yeah. You know? And uh, if you are close to the limit but you go over without realizing that you are going over, yeah. this is uh, you crash and then you lose confidence. Yeah. But this is, uh, is good. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, as you said, it's... Um, a bit like uh, Mark, you know, Mark always uh, find the limit, probably with Honda, I don't know, maybe it's more easy to go over the limit and come back. Yeah. Uh, with Yamaha, you have to, you know, uh, uh, understand where is the limit and don't go too much over. Yeah, so put your toes <laughs> over the limit, but not your whole foot yes. over the yeah, but I think it's uh, similar. I mean, the, the the sensitive, the feeling he has is uh, quite good there. How good is he at communicating that feeling? With him, you mean? And he's quite good. I mean, uh, since the first time I met him was in Saxony. It was uh, really, really good. Um, I, I found a, a very... Uh, easy guy and also um, a guy that put uh, his face in front of the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this yeah, he doesn't run away from problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, what he, what I like of him is that uh, when he when he stop in the garage, he asks me what I can do to improve. Yeah. Is not uh, many riders ask me what we can do on the bike to improve. Yeah, 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 yeah. The approach is completely different. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is uh, um, uh, something that explains really well how he is. Uh, he he believes in himself. Yeah. But as well, uh, he 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 knows he knows that uh, he need to to improve himself to to reach the the top. No. Is that also because he's. You know, he's 19, now 20. Um, when you're 20, you still believe you've got a future. When you're 30, you know, some of your future is behind you. <laughs> yes. Uh, is, is, does his age help? Yeah, I think so. Uh, in his mind, uh, the, the target he wants to achieve is clear. Yeah. And... Uh, he knows that uh, he's younger and uh, he has uh, many years in front of him. And, uh, and this for sure helps. Uh, of course, the, the, the bad thing is that uh, as all the young guys want uh, or would like everything soon yeah. or immediately. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is the, the, the biggest part of my job, no? a part of the technical stuff. I also have to to manage uh, uh, his emotion, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. The human side. Yeah. yeah. He, he want, he want, he want, and sometimes he want to rush too much. Yeah. And then I have to hey, stop a little bit, slow down. Yeah. And because he always want to to be the first in every session. Yeah. He want to beat everybody. Okay, like every riders. Yeah. But uh, I think uh, there is a moment for everything, you know. Yeah. And uh, sometimes uh, you can be the, f the 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 first. Sometimes you have to accept uh, that you cannot do it. Yeah. And you have to get the, the best result you can.
And uh, David, just to come back to some of that writing style that we heard about Fabio, obviously Neil was talking in terms of how he uses the brakes, in particular that rear brake, but one of the things that's always impressed everyone since we've seen Fabio move on to the Yamaha was obviously how quickly he adapted to the bike, but also just how pretty much perfectly he's been in tune with that bike. The Yamaha, always well known for having to be ridden with a very smooth style. You look at the classic Jorge Lorenzo style with that bike, and uh, Quattararo does seem like he's really been able to take that on board. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to an extent, he's not just taking it on board, but he's also taking it up a level because uh, you can see that uh, Quattararo can carry the, the the corner speed that's necessary to actually go uh, really fast. Um, but he's also not afraid to push it and to try to uh, brake harder. Um, he's not afraid to get more physical on the bike. He moves around more on the bike. Um, so it's it's like he's taken taken and understood all the best of um, uh, what Lorenzo was doing, and then uh, stepped it up a notch and sort of mixed it up with with other other bits and pieces. I mean, one thing for me, my, sort of one of my main memories, I think, of um, uh, the 2019 season was watching. Quattararo at uh, Misano through the Curvoni, the uh, the the, uh, the corner at the uh, down down the back straight in the middle of the uh, back straight, where you are uh, sort of pretty much flat out in fifth gear um, uh, at full lean, and Quattararo's there and he's practicing losing the front at whatever whatever it might be to. 50, 260, 270 kilometers an hour. Um, and to actually be practicing that is really quite remarkable. It means you've got an awful lot of confidence in the bike, in your understanding of the bike, and knowing that you can bring it back again without it going sort of too far over the edge. Um, that was uh, that was really what was most impressive to me, I think. Yeah, and Neil, um, David was just mentioning it there about the fact that uh, Quattro has that level of confidence to try and effectively crash through the, the fast right-handers at the end of the back straight in Mazzano. And he talked about how Fabio basically took it up a level with the Yamaha and how, he, how it had to be ridden. But he's also the first of the riders that's sort of been able to take that to Mark Marquez that's come in where Mark has been the rider to beat. Mark has been his target throughout his career. And Fabio's the first rider that we've really seen that spent his whole career trying to be able to do that. Like, is that something you've seen as well? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, with regards to the to the Yamaha thing, and with what David was saying about Mizano, I think it's remarkable. If you remember, um, I think um, Catalunya, the seventh round of last year, was the first time that Quartararo crashed a MotoGP bike, and that includes all testing that he had done. So he was finding these limits without actually going over them. So he had this really very, very calculated understanding of where the limit was. And yes, we know that Yamaha is a very docile bike, and it's the most neutral bike for any rider stepping up from Moto2. That's obviously a great help. But... Um, Still, it's still mightily impressive that he was able to push the limits that he was achieving uh, without overdoing it. Um, and with regards to Marquez, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in each of the, the duels that they had last year, um, yes, you could say that Marquez had the upper hand. Um, but there was, I don't know, I think a, a kind of a, a better marriage with the Yamaha 
um, than Rossi, Vinales, or Morbidelli there. And I mean, that's really saying something because we're not talking about slow riders there. We're talking, each one is a, is a world champion. In Rossi's case, a multiple world champion, multiple Grand Prix winners across the board. Um, and, you know, let's be honest, Quartararo's record in Moto2 um, and in Moto3 to an extent, you know, didn't really have a, you know, doesn't have a hope against the, the records of uh, Vinales and, and Rossi in the smaller categories and certainly Morbidelli in Moto2. Um, so, um, yeah, has that sort of Lorenzo smooth style, which really fits perfectly with Yamaha. And the limitations that the other guys currently have, you think of Rossi with tire life, you think of Vinales with the starts and with the opening laps of the race. Like Quadraro's just blown that out of the water. He's proved that that's not a motorcycle issue. That is those individual riders having problems with the Yamaha. And I think that's another reason why we can look at him and say that he's so strong because he's able to do things that the other guys at this moment um, have proved unable to do consistently yeah i mean you, you really saw that um in the second half of last year with vinales it wasn't just you know rossi who's who was trying to learn and copy um quattro's breaking it was also vinales learning and choosing to focus on setup it's you know, yamaha bought all these new parts the carbon swing arm and a new exhaust and all the rest of it and um vinales said uh, no i don't need to do that i just want to work on setup i just want to work i don't want to i just want to work on my riding i just want to try and go as fast as possible on this bike so i think that was that was the lesson that vinales took from from watching fabio uh, from seeing okay, this bike is capable of more than I'm getting out of it at the moment, so let's try and f get the most out of it before we try and improve. You know, if we go back and listen to one of the previous podcasts that you did, David, with uh, Spanish journalist Manuel Pacino, um, Manuel obviously has some good ties with uh, Vinales and his crew chief, Esteban Garcia, and Manuel was telling you, I think it was in the Sepang Test episode of uh, this podcast, that one of the things Vinales had been doing when preseason training in Qatar was working on changing his braking technique because he believed the way Quadraro was doing it was a better way. And Neil, you also talked to some other people within Fabio's team just about how it is to work with them, what they've been able to see. One of those people was uh, Torloff Hartelman, uh, who works as basically a rider coach and a coordinator and a consultant for the team. And uh, one of the things that he commented on was basically how he's been able to see um, Fabio evolve over the course of the year. But uh, let's have a listen to what uh, Tordoff had to say to you. Yeah, but he's learning very quickly. Yeah? If you explain something and you see something and then you, uh, you speak about, uh, about it with him and uh, yeah, immediately he pick it up and, and, and uh, he work it out and it's going well. Yeah. Right. And it's with, with corners, it's with turning, it's with braking, it's with uh, with everything. Yeah. Yeah. Also with people, with with, with food, with train. Now training is doing well, but with food in the beginning we, we did something. I mean, yeah. has, has it continued like this? Yeah. Still, step by step, small little things. Yeah. Because uh, first he has to learn the bike, everything. If you if you change so much on the bike, you don't know which which direction you go. If, if you have every every time another bike under your uh, under your under your ass, yeah. and then you have to adapt and to learn, and, and that's not the time for. So step by step, we go faster, faster, and then small steps we adjust. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. This bike suits him very well, and he's very clever, and I think he learned and he saw he saw many videos from uh, Lorenzo. Okay. 
I think in this area he, he works uh, works himself in a good way yeah. to suit very quickly on the Yamaha. Yeah. Okay. And in, in what way is he is he kind of um, similar to Lorenzo? Do you think is it like body position? Yeah, body position, the length. So the with with uh, with his back and the, how the position on the bike with the helmet and okay. the back. So he brings the speed in the corner. Yeah. Lines, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. right, um, smooth, very smooth, yeah. yeah, and smooth with everything like throttle, brakes, everything, yeah. yeah. Actually, now I have to say him in the evening something that he has to do a little smoother, okay, but uh, that's the first time this year, really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 exactly. right, right. Okay, well, that's uh, great stuff with Torloff there as well, and uh, really good job on these interviews as well. And there's lots of really useful information uh, in these. But uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Neil, obviously, over the course of the last year since Fabio went into MotoGP, he's gone into a class where, obviously, over the course of the last few years, a lot of the talk has been about Michelin tyres, how riders are able to manage them, how they're able to get the most out of those tyres. And uh, it does seem that that's one of the strengths that Fabio has. And it's very impressive that he has that strength so early in his Grand Prix career. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think um, it's worth mentioning that last year, um, 2019, Michelin did make quite significant progress with the rear tire and tire durability and uh, tire life. And I think um, that was one thing, one of many things that Wilco Zielenberg said, uh, attributed um, Yamaha's kind of mid-season rise last year because if you think back to 16 17 um tire life was always such a massive issue with uh, with with Yamaha they never quite managed to to understand how to to maximize the tire life um so kind of advancements in rear tires I think um, played a part last year, but also um, speaking to Gubalini, also speaking to um, uh, Piero Taramasso, who's the, the basically the, the guy that oversees Michelin's MotoGP effort. Um, you know, and he says he is a very, very impressive figure whenever he's talking to him about the tires. Um, you know, Taramasso says he has a very, very uh, immediate understanding of of what a tire can do and what it can't do. He's able to to work it out, understand uh, basically its limits quite quite soon um, into a session, into a race weekend. Um, and he also says that um, sometimes he's spoken to Fabio after a race and Fabio has been telling him, oh yeah, I kind of uh, got the impression that this tyre was maybe going to, to fade in the last couple of laps. So around lap 12 or lap 13, I started short shifting through these certain corners here, um, basically to try and conserve tyre life. And he said that that's a sign of a, of a guy who, well, is obviously you know, thinking completely, um, very much on the bike, someone that's been able to work that out as well. And uh, we're talking here about a 20-year-old, um, a 20-year-old who's up against guys who are three, four, five, six years older than him, um, even more in many instances, sometimes a decade or, or 15 years older, older than him in Rossi's case. Or 20 years older. Or 20 years, exactly, yeah, <laughs> sure. So, so he's going up against um, some pretty impressive experience, and uh, yet he's able to... Um, yeah, he's able to, to understand how to, to manage a rear tire, which has been one of um, you know Yamaha's big weaknesses in recent years. Um, and apparently, um, according to, to people at Michelin, they say that the kind of vocabulary that he uses whenever he's detailing what a tire is good and isn't good at doing um, is very impressive as well. So you're looking at a guy that you know isn't just blindingly fast. You know his talent is incredibly obvious, but. Um, there's a guy who's very intelligent on the motorcycle and can give very good detailed feedback, which is quite impressive for a 20-year-old. And David, obviously, Fabio's impressed us an awful lot, but we're going to finish the show 
just by hearing how he's impressed a couple of other people. Simon Crafer, a 500 Grand Prix winner, and Freddie Spencer, a triple world champion. But when you look at uh, Quattro and you see how he's been able to basically evolve over the last year in particular and show just how talented he is, like, where's the limit for him? I don't think there is a limit for him. I mean, he seems to be very uh, smart. He seems to be, like I say, mental strength is um, second. Well, uh, it might be second to Mark Marquez, but um, he's going to be very, very close. So I really think he looks like the person who can uh, take the fight to uh, Marquez. Uh, he's in the right management. He's going to be on the on a factory bike in 2021. Um, uh, everything... He, Everything is lining up for him to be able to fight. The Yamaha is improving. Um, so I really think that uh, he is a genuine championship contender. And also he's going to make life hell for Mark Marquez, which is exactly what we want to see. Anyone who can beat Mark, I mean, beating Mark Marquez is the hardest thing in the world uh, at the moment. But he looks like he has all of the tools to uh, uh, give it a really, really, really good shot. Yeah, David, you mentioned there the right management and staying at Yamaha. Obviously enough, we've had another fast Frenchman in the last few years, Johan Zarco. He didn't have the right management. He went to what you'd have to say was the wrong option for him. And obviously enough, given how the last year has played out for him, it's pretty clear that the move to KTM wasn't the right decision for him. Quattararo, at least, is staying on the right path. He's staying on a bike that he knows how to ride, that he knows he can be successful on. And that's obviously going to be something that's going to be key. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like actually, you know, staying with Yamaha, staying with a bike that he understands, um, uh, a bike that suits his riding style, um, uh, being able to direct some of the, you know, direct some of the de development, that's going to give him a lot more power than having to go somewhere. I think um, uh, Andrea Dovicius, I think earlier that, or, uh, sort of halfway through last year said it's becoming more and more difficult to actually uh, change bikes when you change bike it takes you 18 months to actually understand your new bike so uh, swapping bikes can be a very very risky uh, it can be a very very risky prospect um you have to be able to sort of sit on, uh, sat on it you have to be willing to sacrifice that uh, at least that sort of first year as you try and get your head around this thing which doesn't behave the way that you were expecting it um, so I, I think it's really smart for Mark, uh, for uh, Fabio Quattararo to concentrate on the bike that he knows. Um, even swapping teams is going to be quite a big, uh, uh, you know, quite a big change because all of a sudden you've got different people around him. So you want to change as few variables as possible. Concentrate on getting the the, uh, the best out of the bike. Concentrate on improving the few small areas of the bike, uh, and concentrate on uh, learning where Mark Marquez's weak weaknesses are and trying to beat him. And Neil, just for you, obviously, if you think back to last year like with uh, Fabio and Mark, one of the key things that we saw really was just how that battle seemed to evolve once we got to the flyaways at the end of the year. Obviously, in uh, Thailand, in Japan, um, in Australia, we saw that uh, Fabio was able to get onto the podiums. But uh, it was the battles that he was having with Marquez. And then by the time we got to Sepang, if you think back to the qualifying session, that was really the first time where we've seen... Marquez sort of really make it clear just how hard he's having to push 
to try and go with Quadraro. Yeah, exactly. And the, the kind of the value that Mark has placed on trying to wind Quadraro up um, because Fabio had been quite a bit stronger than him throughout uh, throughout that weekend um, at Sepang. And I think that in itself is quite significant because uh, we know that Mark obviously likes to play mind games with a lot of riders on track, but that was a real visual indication of him trying to to wind up a guy that he expects to be, uh, you know, one of his, his principal ri- uh, rivals in the years to come. And I, I seem to remember having a conversation with you, Dave, after the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez last year you were speaking to someone who's very very close to Mark in his kind of inner circle of people that follow him around the world when we're racing at different tracks in the MotoGP championship and he said after a quarter hour's performance at the Spanish GP that well I mean you can you can say you know Mark was actually a little bit concerned yeah absolutely I mean it was uh, I think it was I uh, spoke to them just before the race at Jerez uh, and they said, you know, the one guy that, re- that, that Mark is really afraid of is um, uh, is Fabio because he has the speed, he has the courage, he's not afraid. He said he's not afraid um, and that was what was worried him most. And also there's that little bit of a personal grudge. Um, Quattararo was at the Estrella Galicia team when um, uh, Emilio Alzamora, um, uh, Mar- Marquez's personal manager was there and he really felt that Alzamora was doing everything that he could to uh, block him from his, from success uh, to, to, to slow him down to, uh, to to get in his way and uh, so there is this whole there's it's personal it's not just that Fabio is you know he's fast and capable and Mark's afraid of him but Mark also knows that you know Fabio has a real personal beef with him and really wants to beat him more than anyone else yeah and i think for for me whenever i look back at obviously for for most of fabio's career i've been based in the world superbike paddock so only going to a handful of races but it's always been interesting to see the sort of change that uh, you see from you know not seeing people for four months at a time and you come to an earlier season race and then you come to something in the middle of the year and then you go to valencia at the end of the year and it's always been interesting to see how riders evolve in that sort of time frame. And one of the key things that you can see is just the level of interest in a rider. And uh, if I think back to when Quattararo came in as a rookie in 2015 at the Qatar Grand Prix, everyone was interested in him. Even whenever you saw him out on track, every other rider on the grid was trying to get a toe from him. I think he set his qualifying time on his own, puts it on the second row of the grid. He had that confidence that, you know what, I'm going to show what I can do. And then if you move on to the next year, obviously that was my first year working in World Superbike, so only going to a handful of MotoGP races. And you come in and you saw a guy that had lost that self-confidence. And then the next year was even worse. The following year with the speed up, you could sort of see it starting to come back. And obviously working with that speed up team, as Neil said earlier on, they've always been able to find talented riders and get a lot out of them. And they're still doing that now. But by the time that Fabio moved on to the MotoGP bike, and it went from, I think, Hareth uh, was the first race I went to last year. And then suddenly it was Silverstone and then it was the flyaways. And you suddenly saw this huge level of interest in Quattararo where it went from being, you know, a handful of people at his media debrief to everyone was at his media debrief. You could see the TV crews. You could see that he was the big story. And it was it's always interesting just to see how that sort of evolves through a season and through a couple of years and then how he deals with it. 
Yeah, and like I said, that's his mental strength. That's you know he, he hasn't changed throughout all of that, uh, uh, all of those changes. Um, he's still answering the same questions. He's still got the same amount of patience. He's still just as happy to talk to you um, as he was at the start of the year when there was only sort of four or five of us turning up. Yeah, and I think you know we, we've obviously been praising Fabio and talking up his uh, his incredible talent and how we think that he is going to be basically on the scene for a while. But I think it's worth maybe just adding the small caveat that, well, uh, he still hasn't won a race. Um, he came out on top uh, with that battle with Marquez. Uh, qualifying at Sepang but it was only qualifying and didn't really translate that into the race yesterday there were several instances yesterday when there was or sorry yesterday <laughs> there were several instances last year when he had fantastic potential to possibly even win a race and he made quite a silly mistake uh, think of the first corner at Silverstone think of the second corner at Phillip Island um, and also it is He's on a Yamaha and, I mean, Hafi Siren was able to make uh, top 10 finishes with that bike uh, two years ago. Uh, we saw what happened to Johan Zarco, how quickly the fortunes could change uh, for him when he moved away from Yamaha machinery. Um, however, what Fabio does have on his side are, along with his talent, his youth and, as you mentioned just before, David, the fact that he is signed up with Yamaha until 2000 and, well, the end of 2023 um, and, well... You know, it's it's hard to see him veering too far off the kind of the, the path that he's he's currently on in that time. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the key things, Neil. As you said, he hasn't won a MotoGP race. We said earlier on he had four podiums in four years in the smaller classes. Like last year was so out of the blue. It was one of those years that you look at for other riders, and you can look down the list that. You know, people like Danny Kent, when Danny won his world championship, that was such an outlier compared to the rest of his career. Last year was such an outlier compared to the rest of Quattararo's career in terms of what he's done in the Grand Prix field. But it does look like his can last. A lot of that's going to come down to the fact that, you know, as you said, he's got that stability of another three years on a Yamaha. If in three years time he hasn't been winning races, he hasn't been able to win a world championship then there's going to be a lot of big questions to ask about you know, what has happened to Quadraro. But as it stands right now, you have to look at him and be excited. There was a lot of people inside the paddock that openly questioned the decision to put him into a MotoGP bike. And there was a lot of people also that said, you know what, on the basis of what we saw from him as, as a, you know, a junior rider coming through this, the CEV championship, some of the flashes you saw in Moto3 and Moto2, there's something there if someone can unlock it. And they have been able to unlock it over the last year. Now the big thing is being able to do that consistently and to be able to do that with the pressure. And Dave, that's where, as you said earlier on, the resiliency that Quattararo has really can come into its own. Yeah, and what you were saying there, Steve, I mean, if in three years he hasn't managed to win a race or, or fight for a championship with Yamaha, well, that will be a bit of a disappointment because we've expected him to do that. But... Uh, in three years, he'll still be, what, 23? You know, he, he has a decade or more in front of him, you know, especially if you consider the, you know, the age of some of the, the guys that are still running at the front of MotoGP these days. So, um, you know, I, I think we have to we have to also bear in mind that he doesn't need to win the championship in 2020 to suddenly kind of confirm everything that we've been we've been building up you know if he's fighting for the if, I think if he wins a race this year it's going to be fantastic um, and maybe if he posts the championship challenge in the next two or three years then fantastic I uh, I I disagree slightly I think he has to absolutely has to win a race in 2020 
if we have any racing in 2020, I mean, presuming uh, that we do have sort of 10, 15 races, uh, then he absolutely has to win a race. He has to be competing in the championship. If you look at uh, the way that he performed in the second half of uh, the 2019, uh, then for sure he has to be at least sort of, you know, in the chase, um, uh, even though it, it could be a little bit uh, tighter. But he has to be, you know, he has to be finishing top three, four. Um, he has to win a race. He has to be on the podium more regularly um, for it to really, uh, uh, yeah, for, for him to, for, for the next year to really be, uh, uh, to really prove it. I think the difference between Quattro and Zarco is that um, uh, Quattro was more regularly beating all the other Yamaha riders. Um, uh, Zarco uh, was good, good sometimes and not good other times. Quattro, especially basically after Jerez was was fast almost everywhere. Um, he didn't buckle under pressure at Le Mans, for example. So it's uh, I, I think. I'm much more optimistic about uh, Quattararo than uh, the, than Zarco, but I also think there's going to be a lot more pressure on him. But like you say, you know, even if he uh, even if he doesn't, by the end of it, he'll be 23 and um, still have a fair few years to prove himself. Yeah, and uh, just before we finish off, uh, as I said earlier, we've also got a couple of other experts that we can uh, call into this and uh, riders that certainly know an awful lot more about what Fabio is going to face. We've got Freddie Spencer and Simon Crafar to uh, give their thoughts on what they saw from Fabio Quattararo. The main thing is mindset. It's having the, the, the mindset that you never uh, know everything. And and the other thing is you have to develop a a kind of a thick skin of um, keeping your own expectations in check. Uh, go what everyone else is saying, and um, and also not to be affected by the criticism. And you know it's it's a very um, at the very top in, in what we do, it's it's a very isolating environment, even though you're surrounded by by so much. And uh, so that's the main thing. And he and I think I think he has a maturity now. I really do to that. Uh, and a good good mind. And, and again, great riders, good riders, great riders. It's their mind that separates them, you know, from from most from other talented riders, you know. And uh, and I think he he'll be fine, and and you know that motivation, you know you look at someone uh, like Valentino Rossi who's done it for twenty something years, you know, um, and you know it is it is a job, you know, you, and you know expect there's gonna be highs and lows, and again he's already been through that, you know, so I think he'll I think he'll be fine, and it's good for the sport, you know, it's great for the sport. Yeah. So. We need as many people out there. Absolutely. Possible, we do. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, Freddie. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Is Fabio here to stay? Is he uh, Is he going to be a force for the next decade? Well, the thing is, um, I I mean, I went from, that's what people thought about me as well. Yeah. But I changed tire brand the next year. It was, it's like Zarco changing to KTM and it just, Turned bad, you yeah. know, really bad. I went through a similar experience to to uh, Joan Zarco, and uh, uh, the thing is, long as they keep their, that's why. If I was Fabio, I wouldn't rush off in a hurry and yeah. sign for someone else yeah. because there'll be other people that want him, because he's a superstar, you know, he's absolutely brilliant. 
but I would really hesitate to do that. I'd get some more experience under my belt and yeah. stick with what works. Yeah, sure. uh, that's only, I mean, I tell you what, I'm in the position uh, Rainey was to me, you know. Rainey, Wayne Rainey rang me one day and said, oh, I'd hesitate to change tiebreaker if I was you, Si, you know. Oh, really? And I was like, they're, they're world champions, you know, the, the other brand, I'll say, was world champions. And um, like, what, what could go wrong, you know? And um, he knew something I didn't, you know. Right. There's uh, different, basically it takes different skills to ride the most out of different products, you yeah. know, whether it's bike or tires. And uh, if it works, don't change it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, to get right all the way back to your question, yeah, if he sticks on the Yamaha, they improve. He's going to really take it to Mark, isn't he? There's yeah. no doubt, you know. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so that's great to have the insight of Freddie Spencer and Simon Crafer on this podcast, just looking at Fabio Quattroraro. And uh, a big thanks to everyone that's been involved with their interviews. Big thanks to David Emmett and Neil Morrison as well. Like I said at the start of the show, this is a bit of a stranger show compared to normal. Obviously, with the coronavirus, there's bigger fish to fry than motorcycle racing. But uh, we hope that this show's at least being able to give everyone a bit of a distraction in what's a very complicated time for everyone within the paddock. And uh, the thoughts go out from everyone in the Paddock Pass podcast to anyone that's been affected by what we've seen in the uh, in the world over the last couple of weeks. So until the next time on the Paddock Pass podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. And uh, you can still leave in your questions for myself, Steve English, David Evans, and uh, Neil Morrison and uh, we'll make sure to get those answered in a future show and uh, you can still support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and uh, you can still follow us on Facebook as well and uh, big thanks to everyone for listening to today's show